0: Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and Dan, I really feel like we need to start saying Dave Filoni in here. Uh, (laughs) Dave Filoni and the rest of the team at at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. Um, I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the one, the only, Dan Z. Uh, he and I are recording this on Thursday, July 23rd, uh, and we were just talking about the, the big Star Wars news that, that broke, what, just a couple hours before we recorded uh, yeah. tonight,
1: right? Another seismic shift in this uh, crazy release schedule that's not only affecting movies this summer, but you know, all the way through 2027 and beyond.
0: Yeah. Okay. So for those of you who didn't see this, the, uh, this was kind of bundled in with the news that Disney was taking its live action Mulan, which was supposed to finally be opening in theaters in uh, on August 21st of this year. And they just basically unscheduled it. They pulled it off of Disney's release schedule for all of 2020. And in the process, they, they also broke news about other big films Further on down the line, that are going to be impacted uh, by what's happening with theatrical releases due to COVID nineteen. And okay, so there were three Star Wars projects that were impacted by this. Um, now, mind you, none of these films officially have titles. I mean, I'm sure in house they have titles, uh, but what we we had the, the uh, Untitled Star Wars Number One. Uh, got moved to December 22nd 2023 uh, untitled Star Wars number two got pushed back to December 19th 2025 and as you mentioned uh, st- the untitled Star Wars number three got pushed back all the way to uh, December 17th of 2027 um, worth noting here that all four, uh, Avatar films that James Cameron uh, is working on right now. Uh, those also got pushed back by a full year. And four Avatar movies, Dan. That's an awful lot of blue cat people. That is uh, indeed. Um And uh, also, just want to reassure people, the one film that at Lucasfilm is working at that doesn't seem to be impacted by this is uh, Indiana Jones 5. Uh, that Lucasfilm production is still slated to be released theatrically, July twenty ninth, uh, two thousand twenty two. Um, so, well, what's your take on this, Dan? I mean, previously, you you've seemed okay with there being a break between, you know, the theatrical films, so to speak, right? Or yeah,
1: and I still am. I mean, it's another year that we have to wait, but if mm-hmm. if another year means that we have time to actually film, you know, Mm. create and get things organized and orchestrated and ready to go because putting on a movie is a massive production that takes Mm -hmm. up a lot of people's times and lives Mm -hmm. and the way the world is now. It's not going to happen. So I'd rather they do it right, make sure they can do it when everybody is safe. We've hopefully got Mm -hmm. a vaccine by then, my goodness, and we can just get back to business as usual. So if you're going to wait a little bit longer to make a better quality product, then I think that's fine because I don't know. I, I really don't know what in the heck... These movies are going to be about. Besides the fact that they're in a galaxy far, far away, so sure. if it gives them more time to creatively get the juices going and kind of let things percolate, then I am all for it.
0: Okay. Now, just to be clear here, we are talking about a four-year gap between Rise of Skywalker, uh, which came back, uh, you know, back in December of 2019, and Untitled Star Wars Number no. One, uh which again is December of 2023. But let's be honest here. We're not talking about this being a Star Wars free zone between now and 2023. I mean, this fall, we'll have the the second season of The Mandalorian. uh, And uh, meanwhile, production of that Obi-Wan limited series is still uh, slated to get it away in early 2021. Uh, Dark Greger still in the title role. Deborah Chow directing as well as serving as a showrunner. And Hosni Amani and Joby Harold are writing. Um, by the way, Dan, I, w- I was working the phones this week, um, largely because of that Lando rumor uh, that was making the rounds. Did you see that, by the way? or I did, and oh. you could probably guess what I did. I, I completely blurred my eyes and um, <laughs> tried to forget about it. Well, you know, yeah. it's – it's well, what's kind of interesting I, and um, – uh, well – you know th- the weird part of it is is that um, when I was talking uh, with a friend at Lucasfilm, um, I got a non denial denial. In fact, the reason I got a non denial denial is largely because of the Mandalorian and also COVID nineteen. Um, there seems to be a, 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 there's an interesting. Groupthink that that that's kind of occurring at Lucasfilm right now, and basically um, no one. You know, in fact, it, it, it ties in with with what we started off with tonight. That you know the impact that, that COVID nineteen has had on you know theatrical releases and you know what exhibitors can do and what movie theaters can open and the like. And you know, there's a lot of folks that um, inside of Lucasfilm that are looking at how well the Mandalorian did. And I'm not talking about the huge audience that it got, uh, you know, on Disney Plus, uh, but also how well these stories and these characters are doing in retail channels. I mean, just today, Dan, I'm sitting here and Nancy just blipping around the, the, the channels and lands on QVC and they were selling the child. <laughs> There's a, a version of the child that was, you know, being sold to people who were paying attention to that shopping channel. And the belief is that the Mandalorian has, in a lot of ways, has plowed the road um, to a safer harbor for Star Wars for a while. And that's uh, doing limited series over at Disney Plus that, um, you know, I mean, first of all, uh, Disney Plus, as we've seen, um, you know, a lot of uh, things that were meant to be released theatrically, uh, Artemis Fowl and, uh, coming up shortly, uh, the one and only Ivan, um, you know, have wound up on that subscription streaming service and have done very well. I mean, racked up some amazing numbers and, you know, the belief is that, well, look, you know, if we we go there with Obi-Wan and, you know, we go there with Lando, um, this is a safe space, and we also – we don't have to worry about delivering a two-hour-long film. If a story needs breathing space, uh, we can do breathing space. Plus it
1: gives so, Disney Plus content, which is something that, that they are always trying to make sure they have anyway.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But um, – which it brings me to – um you know, my, the next bit of news – Um, how surprised were you by the Bad Batch announcement?
1: Uh, I guess it was sort of yes and no. I thought, well, that's a a logical step, because otherwise why spend four episodes when you only have a few to put out for the last season of Clone Wars on Mm -hmm. new characters unless you're planning on investing in them? And the response, obviously, was huge. People Mm -hmm. wanted action figures of them. They loved Mm -hmm. the new designs, and they are very, very sharp. It certainly generated a lot of buzz on coffee with Kenobi. So I think it's great. I mean, it mm-hmm. it looks like Dave Filoni's not going to be completely hands-on like he was with The Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. But I think it's I mean, it's a logical progression until... I mean, because let's face it, we really don't know the direction of the franchise besides some fun things on Disney+. Everything is all kind of set in that same era that we already know very, very well anyway. So I guess you just might as well keep exploring the turf that people already love.
0: I agree. I agree. Now, uh, the show description... Uh, and again, you, as you mentioned that these, these characters were introduced in season seven of the clone wars animated series. Um, so the bad batch is trying to find its way in a rapidly changing galaxy in the immediate aftermath of the clone wars. And so, uh, in a post clone wars era, uh, these, they take on daring mercenary missions as they struggle to stay afloat and find new purpose. Um, I, I think for me, in fact, I, I remember reaching out to you when this press release came out. Uh, so we have Agnes Chu, who's the senior vice president of content at Disney plus, uh, you know, and she said, giving new and exciting, uh, new and existing fans. The final chapter of star Wars clone wars has been our honor at Disney And so we are overjoyed at the global response to this landmark series. And while The Clone Wars may have come to its conclusion, our partnership with the groundbreaking storytellers and artists at Lucasfilm Animation is only beginning. We are thrilled to bring Dave Filoni's vision to life through the next adventures of The Bad Batch. And for me, I, again, like when I reached out to Dan, it's like that phrase, Dan Filoni's vision, uh, that that seemed pretty significant to me. Um you know, and, and I the agree fact with that, that. But do you do yeah. you
1: think that that was always the plan from day one, as far as putting Clone Wars on Disney Plus that they would follow with the Bad Batch, or do you think this
0: was kind of an idea that was sparked after the response was so positive? You know, I I, I have been trying to get a straight answer on that because remember, um I had what I thought was reasonably good intel about um, a Star Wars Rebels series continuation. Um, which, you know, th- s- abruptly ended, you know, in, in fact, it, it, you know, again, in that same window of time that Clone Wars was airing on Disney plus and, but, but he, here's the interesting thing. I mean, if you could, Dave is the executive producer of this new show, Star Wars, the Bad Batch, but he was also the creator of Star Wars resistance. Uh, he was also the creator and executive producer of all four seasons of Star Wars Rebels, So, uh, you know, face it, going forward, um, you know, and especially given the hands-on role Dave has with the Mandalorian, um, it's going to be interesting to, to, you know, see which of these he in fact is, you know, as hands-on as he's been in the past. Um, By the way, uh, speaking of Star Wars Rebels, uh, I was wondering – uh if you'd seen the latest uh Star Wars tie-in novel uh what is it Alexander Freed's Shadowfall
1: yeah it's part two of that series of course hmm. yeah and I've got the audiobook and the the regular book and it's it's got some it's always had some fun little and they're not really easter eggs they're a little more than that but just not a ton there but there's there's some clues aren't there
0: yeah well well that's the thing I'm I'm totally convinced that at some point we are circling back on the Star Wars Rebels narrative Because it, it, as Dan uh, Just mentioned This book is set uh, Shadowfall um, Right after Return of the Jedi And it tells the story of Former Re- uh, Rebel Now new Republic General Hera Sildara Syndulla Sindu- S- So close uh, <laughs> And in one key, key scene Hera is looking to continue a conflict Between the Empire And wishes she had a Jedi night with her and uh, Republic leaders uh, who were in the same meeting noticed a wistful expression pass over her face with, you know, uh, which makes sense. You know, I mean, Hera was involved with uh, Canaan and, uh, you know, she had his child. And, you know, Isra Bridger was one of her uh, closest friends. By the way, um, I, just little side note here. Uh, Dan, uh, you know, you—I—I—I I, 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 I don't know if I should be thanking you or not, uh, in regard to Doctor Afara. Afra, Afra, see yes. again. You know, I'm just a two for two, folks. Um, <laughs> You know, Dr. Afra, um, you, you know, I had mentioned that, you know, that Marvel was relaunching the comic series and, and you spoke so highly of the character as kind of an anti Indiana Jones, um, that I, I ordered the first graphic novel to just sort of get a sense, you know, taste of the character. And I, I, I have here in front of me the seventh, uh, Wow. Yes, I I bought all of them and read all of them and wanted uh, and noticed just this week that uh, the Dr. Afra the the, what the audio book became available with a kind of startling voice cast um it's a great and
1: i and they sent that to me so i've heard it already and it's it's fabulous it's Mm -hmm. it's extremely well produced it was aaron adams would be proud okay and it's got it basically takes um those first two books and Mm -hmm. ties in some things coming from the main star wars title and incorporates it in there but it really adds uh quite a bit more psychological depth to afro to a degree that it's she's uh It's almost depressing to listen to her because there's a lot of pain there and they really explore it. Mm -hmm. I think I just took up about 12 more hours of your life because I think (laughs) you'll love it.
0: (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) I was kind of hoping you'd tell me to take a pass. No, it's Um, great. It's phenomenal. uh, Dang. Okay. The the, the voice work
1: of Triple Zero is worth the price of admission in itself. He
0: is such. So, I mean, he's I, a nightmare. <laughs> I, well, but that's the thing. It's just—I I think the Venn diagram of this series is so hard to land. The—the—the the, the humor, you know, particularly of—you of, know—and the menace of triple zero, you know, just sort of like. Ah. Um, See, and, for and my again, money,
1: that needs to be a Disney Plus show. That would be as successful as Man- as the Mandalorian, I think.
0: Wow. But she, I mean, again, I still have this seventh gar- graphic novel to read. That's my, my my goal for tomorrow. I like it. Um, but it's, it, she's so much an and anti-hero. I mean, it, you know, it has these weird moments where you think she's going to redeem herself. You know, <laughs> she's made the turn. <laughs> and then she rips the rug out from under you again and again and again. And does it to um, herself even. That's true. That's true. Um, but anyway, I, I again I wanted to thank you for you know just sort of putting that, that bug in my ear. And I'm again, glad. Seven, I'm so glad. And but it been now, you know, of course, now I'm debating, you know, because the individual comic books for the the release of you know the the relaunch, uh, you know, are are available for purchase. And but at the same time, they're listing the graphic novel based on on those. Uh, it'll be available in January of this year. Yeah, or let be January of two thousand twenty-one, and I'm I'm debating whether or not I should I wait for the the full. I mean, what do you typically do?
1: do you I, I used to buy them every monthly, and I used to do a column for Stars dot com, Comic Book Galaxy, but now I just do trades because it's like you're binging it, and you can just kind of get through twelve of them
0: in in, in one shot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, okay, I, I will give that some thought. But again, i, I got to finish seven first. Uh, and, and speaking of, of, of Star Wars books, uh, have we cracked our copy of The Traveler's Guide to Batuu yet? Yeah, I, read, I read four Star Wars books this week, and that was one of them. Really? Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. Quar- which is, quarantine, oh, you know. <laughs> oh, this is true. All right, so this one is supposedly penned by Elok Thorno, which are I, I'm I'm believing my little anagram based brain. That's Cole Horton, right? That's yeah. Uh, that's
1: one of my co-authors for the Star Wars book.
0: Yes, yes it is. And and we are now. It's still October first, right?
1: October twentieth.
0: Uh, October twentieth. Okay. All right. The Star Wars book, folks. I still can't believe there wasn't a book before that point that had that title. I know. Uh, so well. Anyway, what did, what did you think of the uh, the Traveler's Guide to Batuu?
1: I thought it was charming. I thought there were, there were a couple of... If they were trying to keep it in-world, I thought it wasn't as logical to introduce ideas with the Resistance in the First Order, but that's probably just overly technical, mythological mm-hmm. construction on my part. Um, I thought it was fun for what it was. I, I think there's a couple of areas I'd like to see some major expansions, but the Orabesh guide, the maps, was great. I was hoping for even more kind of a, of a guide to seen everything in Dac Andars and things like mm-hmm. that. So I think I don't know if that was just purposeful to just kind of lightly let people kind of dip their toes in the
0: water of Batu, or if there's gonna be room for an expansion. But overall pretty fun. What about you? Well, I again I always worked my trap line to, you know, when this book came out and, and given, you know, for example, of uh, you know, the the obvious conversations that Uh, Cole had to have had with both the folks at Lucasfilm and the folks at WDI. So I was reaching out to friends at WDI and said, so what do you guys make of this book? And they were like, did you read the part about Galma yet? And I I, I wanted to share this with, with our listeners. Galma is a short shuttle ride from Black Spire Outpost and is known as a haven for illegal pod racing and the gambling that surrounds this outlawed sport. And, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) the reason I got directed in to look at that is that, um, evidently prior to the whole COVID-19 thing, Disney had been doing a lot of survey work on Millennium Falcon smugglers run and, uh, you know, it just, it didn't seem to be landing the way, um, they hoped it would. So, in much the same way that the ride film for uh, Star Wars, uh, I remember Star Tours had one ride film for years and years and years, and then suddenly there were multiple variations, the the, the multiple branching thing that they did for the Star Wars: The Adventures Continue. Um, I, you know, evidently they did focus grouping on this and uh, asked people what they, they wanted to do with the Millennium Falcon. And one of the things that did in fact come up is, is being at a pod race. So which is so strange. It is strange. Who are they I, asking? Why
1: don't they ask
0: me? <laughs> well, you, get, you, you see, your problem is you're not, you know, somebody who they can get in a focus group uh in Glendale, California. You know, that that That's you true. know, what when they're they're grabbing folks, it's typically within, you know, thirty some odd miles of you know, where WDI headquarters is located. And, uh, you know... I, well, is Gaulman supposed to be an,
1: an, another way of saying this is for the Galactic Star Cruiser Star Wars Hotel, or is it something else?
0: Well, I, you know, uh, speaking of which, um, the opening date of that project um, has definitely slid. Uh, you know, this came up uh, during my conversation about Millennium Falcon, and, and basically... Um, you know, uh, right now, 2000, I mean, the weird thing is f- folks are still working on it inside. Uh, and remember, the, if, if all had gone according to plan, we would have had, you know, soft opening in late 2020, officially opening in, in 2021. Uh, now, you know, I, I think we're honestly going to be lucky if, uh, you know, it, if we see that, that thing all know, the schedule for the opening of that only slide by a year. So, uh, with a soft opening in 2021 and then officially opening in 2022, uh, you know, it's, well, honestly, a lot of it has to do with, uh, what's going on in Florida right now with the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, right now, in theory, the only people who are going to, uh, Disney theme parks are Florida state residents, because you know everybody else who's come flying into the state first has to quarantine in place for 14 days, and only then would they be allowed to to, to go into a Disney park. And then conversely, whenever they'd leave Florida, they'd have to do the same thing; they'd have to qu- quarantine for another 14 days. And yeah. of course, everyone's doing that, Dan. Right?
1: Well, sure. Uh, well, did you yeah. see that Target has teamed up to sell? Some interesting Galaxy's Edge. Yes. Version. I, said, well, the, the, I yes. wanted the Falcon, but then I mm-hmm. saw that was $400. Uh,
0: but but they have also that shuttle, don't they? The, it has the, the, the shuttle.
1: Sh- it has Hondo. Mm-hmm. It has Chewie. It has a number of Porgs, and it looks really nice. It's even got some of that cargo equipment that's at the base of mm-hmm. Batuu. I mean, I love it. I think it's great. But 400 bucks for something I
0: already have three <laughs> versions of is probably not <laughs> the best idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, well, you know that it, I, as I understand it, Dan, you don't really have a collection of something until you have three of them. Well, all I right, guess so in. <laughs> where did they go? It's a collection. Um, well, well, by the way, you, you were mentioning, you know, uh, you know, well, obviously these are the more expensive uh, Galaxy's Edge, you know, related items. But did did you see where? Um, some very very affordable Galaxy's Edge um, you know uh, souvenirs turned up in Alabama yes. last month. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, or like um, a surplus, well, right? Is that why they did that? Well, I, actually, to explain to the listeners here, we what the the thermal the detonators, the special uh, Coca Cola bottles that are shaped like, like thermal detonators. Um, in fact, you you were at the Star Wars Celebration when they the, they rolled these yes. out, right? I sure you know that, was, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, this was a very big deal that Disney and, and Coca-Cola got in bed together to create these things. And then, of course, there was the whole issue with the, the, the TSA about, you know, we don't like you to take, you know, fake-looking explosives on planes. We're funny that way. Um, full of liquid, too, yeah. Yeah, full of liquid. Yeah, that, that's two for two right there um but yeah that but it it turns out cuz it's a coke product um i, I in fact I, I looked this up supposedly coca-cola in the bottle on the shelf is good for 6 to 8 months and and remember you know star wars uh, galaxy's edge along with all the disney theme parks closed down in mid march and you know there were all these items backstage that that had a shelf life and Somebody at Disney evidently decided, well, you know, if you look at the expiration date on these bottles, uh, they go bad and – or they're supposed to be pulled in April of 2020. So a decision was made to – well, you know, we we can't sell these now. So let's release them to the secondary market, which is why they turned up – all right, in a a grocery store in Hartford, Alabama – uh, and a very enterprising young man, Clayton Williams, uh, an 18-year-old University of Central Florida student, uh, discovered them. And evidently, you could buy a 12-pack at that point for six dollars and ninety-nine cents. Wow! So <laughs> Clayton bought them all. You know, I mean, bought the entire, I guess, ten cases of the stuff for sixty-seven dollars and nineteen cents, and fabulous. Uh, Yeah. So I don't know. (laughs) Somewhere there's a lot of, you know, dead. Well, more to the point, there's somebody who really uh, has an upset stomach from drinking that much out of date Coca-Cola and Diet Coke and Fresca. So, um, but anyway, um, now uh, we were also talking before we got started with the the show tonight, you know, so. Star Wars Galaxy's Edge has now reopened along with Disney's Hollywood Studios, Um, but not everything uh, has opened Now, you were mentioning, for example, uh, Savvy's Workshop, right? That's right. And how, you know, I mean, face it, you know, the the reason people went to Savvy's Workshop was that wonderful uh, lightsaber building uh, moment. And uh you know and that's not going on now because it's it's small, tight space. But <coughs> people but can still, still get lightsabers. Right?
1: Yeah, they can go in and get those legacy lightsabers. So I thought, well, I guess maybe there's less interaction, but you're still handing things to people and you're still uh look I don't know. I I, mm. I found it a little perplexing that they decided to still open that space.
0: Yeah, I mean It's, lens... small. it's very small. No, no, no. A lens been in Galaxy's Edge. Uh, a, a number of times uh, over the past week or so, and and has been talking about, you know, for example, the bazaar where, um, you know, remember that that's supposed to be a tight space where you know everything, the hands on and that sort of thing, and yeah. he was talking about how displays have been moved in such a way to make it easier for people to pass through the space and and shop. Um, and I I want to say he was surprised, I think, to um. Is it the, the the droid works? Is that open as well? That is
1: open. They have like a bunch of um, <coughs> glass up and different things like that, so that you can you can still build your droids. But I think that the options are a little bit different. And it, but it's all it's all broken up very very. It almost looks like a a bank from the eighties. The way they've got everything separated. <laughs> oh, but apparently, Jeez. people are loving it.
0: Of course. Well, good. I can I do, And now I want to go in there and get a calendar. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> Um, but and on our last show, you and I were going back and forth about Oga's Cantina because, of course, again, Florida and supposedly shutting down the bars. Um, and and we were getting these mixed signals about is Oga's going to be open, and if so, how? Um, and now we have a little more info about that. I, I mean, Oga's is in fact open. Um, but Len was explaining that that supposedly this is because the way the legislation is written is that if you get half of your revenue for a uh, you know a restaurant slash bar from food sales, uh, you can open. But <laughs> I, I, now, how was it you were describing the edibles at at, at Oga's again? <sighs> or. I don't remember what I said, but ah, there we go. Okay, it's not
1: that it's bad, but it's more like it's barely is a checks mix, and it's not really food. It's like you're going to go in and be full. And I know this because we're considering going. I thought, well, I should schedule lunch there to bring my family in, but we're going to be hungry because there's Mm -hmm. really not. It's not like you can get cheeseburgers or anything. Yeah. So I was surprised because I can't imagine that half of what they sell. Is that stuff? I just can't believe that's true.
0: Well, but at the same time, in a weird sort of way, isn't this appropriate? I mean, is it you know, yeah. supposedly Black Spire Outpost is full of, of scoundrels bending the law? So, yes. You know, well, I mean, that's, that's very true. Yeah. So, I mean, you get the fact that, yes, you have to buy 15 containers of check mix, but hey, you're in here. Enjoy your fuzzy tauntaun. Yep. So, and they are um, good. Okay. Well, um, Speaking of beverages, uh, in a moment, I'm going to be asking Dan about what beverages he and his son had during a very special outing, uh, they went on in th- th- the past week or so. And we're back. Um, so I, I, I again, I, I apologize that this is me indulging myself here, folks, but Dan did this very cool thing with his son, Mason, that I would love for you to tell the, our listeners about. Absolutely. So where
1: I live is um, the, the Harvest Twin uh, drive-in movie theater. It's, in, it's near it's near where I live. It's, well, it's not near, it's about an hour and a half drive away, but it's in Gibson City, Illinois. It's voted one of the top ten drive-ins in the United States of America. And we follow them, of course, on Facebook, and they've been showing like Jaws and all the Indiana Joneses and all the Harry Potters and just all kinds of great stuff. But, of course, no Star Wars, no Star Wars. And then I got a tip that Disney was letting theaters show The Empire Strikes Back. Sure enough, that was the case. So we did it. Uh, I contacted my my buddy, Corey Club, who helped me co-create Coffee with Kenobi. He brought a couple Mm. of his kids. Tom Gross, who does the news with us on Coffee with Kenobi, he brought his wife and his girls. And then Mason and I went out there as well and it's an interesting way that it's set up Jim because you can just pay and just kind of drive and and park wherever but if you pay I think it was 18 bucks for your car mm-hmm. you got front row reserve parking spots and I thought well that's mm-hmm. worth it I mean 18 dollars that's great so we got there you you mm-hmm. pay I think five bucks to bring in any food that you want mm-hmm. and so we filled a I filled my my Star Wars uh, uh, cooler up mm-hmm with all kinds of snacks and a uh, big old thing of water for us and some Capri Suns and got the folding chairs out and opened up our trunks. And then uh, before the movie, they, they show old, old time, you know, movies with like the peanuts and the hot dogs dancing and all that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, oh it's so
1: magical. And then it was a beautiful night. I think it was in the 70s. I mm-hmm. read uh, their blankets and sweatshirts. And it was just it was great. And everyone wore their masks and literally even the cars were parked six feet apart from each other because they had different uh, cones in every other spot. So you couldn't park there. So it was it was completely safe. My brother and his daughter made it out. So I at least got to see everybody. I'll be from, gosh, six oh. to oh. ten feet away. But still, we were there, and the movie started. And the magical thing about it, Jim, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if I've told the story on the show or not, but the first time I ever saw Star Wars, we tried multiple times to see it, but it was always sold out mm-hmm. because it was such a popular thing in the late 70s, of course. And mm-hmm. so the first time I ever saw Star Wars, I was seven years old, and I saw it at a drive-in in New Orleans, Louisiana. So oh. Mason, who has seen Empire before, but his yep. first experience seeing a Star Wars movie at a drive-in, he was seven, mm-hmm. and he watched The Empire Strikes Back. So you're watching Star Wars literally under the stars, and he said to me on the way home that he hoped that when he had his son that his first Star Wars movie would be Return of the Jedi.
0: And I thought, well, that mm-hmm. is pretty beautiful. That is pretty beautiful. Okay. Uh, uh, Again, forgive me here. So you brought your own food, but was the concession stand open? It was. They had a ton of stuff, including, Jim, Mm. a pickle-flavored Icy. Huh. Okay. That is a hard pass. You had me. And then uh, the pickle-flavored Icy. Yeah, it's disgusting. Okay. Um, Well, no, I'm I'm so thrilled that you actually got to do this. Oh, it's magical. You know, our, our our local drive-in in Milford is doing kind of the same thing, and I've been sort of monitoring what they're. Yeah, you know, mind you, that they, they were running, you know, Dirty Dancing, and I I forget, I, I think Grease was oh, yeah. paired with it. So I'm I'm hoping over the summer, uh, that that we you know get that same thing because again, I would just love to see a Star Wars movie in a drive-in. I, I you know, I mean, it's been years. It's pretty um, enchanting. But it, but it's interesting. You you mentioned um, you know previously you know the the, the same drive-in showed uh, Jaws and Harry Potter and the like, and of course you know all, you know those films featured you know the wonderful music of of John Williams. Yes, and just this past week, I'm I'm literally sitting. I I, I normally work at the dining room table with my back to the television, and Nancy's watching uh, you know television. And again, she's she's blipping around. And she stumbles upon. Um, I want to say it was WGBH, our public uh, television channel out of Boston. Um, they had decided to, you know, again, given you know, <laughs> given the disruption in the sort of broadcast food chain, uh, to tap into their library to, you know, to, to dig out some old classic shows. And what they did is they they've dug out five special episodes of Evening at Pops. And I, I don't know if they ever played these in, in your part of the country, Dan, but they are, you know, the Boston pops orchestra, uh, you know, these hour long concerts and of the five episodes that they decided to run, um, the, the one that Nancy caught totally by accident was from April 29th, 1980. It was John Williams debut as the new conductor of the Boston pops orchestra. Um, and again, it, the interesting thing is that John replaced Arthur Fiedler. Um, I don't know if you, you're familiar with Arthur. He. Extremely. Uh, he, I, I, his Christmas album is a staple at our house. There we go. I was, you know, the, the, the sleigh ride, you know, the, the, the Leroy Anderson. Um, but yeah, he passed away in July of 1979. That was his 50th year. As the conductor of the Boston Pops, and and Disney fans might know, Arthur from when he directed the world orchestra uh, at the foot of Cinderella Castle during the grand opening celebration of Disney World back in October of seventy one. Um, but but you know Arthur was was a, a New England institution. Uh, in fact, kind of ironic uh, for his fiftieth year as the uh, conductor of the Boston Pops, he actually reaches out. To John Williams and, you know, asked him if he'd be available to write a special piece of music for his 50th anniversary. He was looking for some sort of new march to conduct. And and John was flattered to be asked, but he had to beg off. Um, he was in the middle of writing the, the, the score for a, a film at the time. I'm still trying to track down which film it might have been. Um anyway Williams was known to the pops organization he guest conducted the orchestra in fact ironically twice in 79 um, but anyway Arthur passes away in uh, mid-july of 79 and you know the, you know the question is how do you replace an institution how do you replace a guy who's been doing the job for 50 years and and, and the, the interesting the Boston Pops organization uh, kind of uh, runs a very thorough, uh, you know, search for candidates and, and you know, uh, they're kind of all over the map at one point. They, they consider, you know, Mitch Miller, they, they follow the bouncing ball sing-along guy. Um, but then because, it, and as you mentioned, um, Arthur had done a best-selling series of recordings uh, that featured the Boston Pops, and the organization really wanted to keep that going. And meanwhile, here's John Williams who, you know, uh, again, you know, had a very strong career as a, uh, you know, a, a guy who wrote scores for film. In fact, I was amazed. I, I was doing some some digging into his early career, Dan. And, uh, you know, there's so many things I never knew about John Williams. I can, for example, do you remember the infamous um, – the the TV movie of Heidi – in 1968 that, that uh, you know, was broadcast on NBC that disrupted uh, oh. the...
1: the <laughs> yes, yes, yes.
0: John wrote the score wow. for, you know, for that. So, you know, th- that he was in the middle of all that. Uh, but he also, he wrote music for, uh, you know, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. Um, I mean, he he was in the mix, you know, very, very early on and and then, of course, wrote... You know, the scores for, uh, you know, Irwin Allen's, uh, you know, it, it, you know, disaster movies, uh, you know, Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno. And, you know, and so he was already, you know, associated with big, big hits. And then he does Star Wars and or, or for that matter, he you know, one two punch. He does Jaws and Star Wars and it just takes things to a whole new level. Um, so. The Boston Pops organization is looking at, you know, wow, Arthur's gone, so we're not going to sell as many albums, but, but look at this John Williams guy, you know, I bet if he was, you know, the director, I mean, he's, look at these huge films he's worked on. I bet we'd sell a lot of albums. And so, um, they, they, they go to Williams. He's very flattered, uh, you know, especially being asked to follow Arthur Fiedler and he agrees to take the job. In fact, what you'll love, Dan, is he was in London recording the score for Empire when he signed his contract to, to wow. lead the Boston Pops. Um, and and seriously, you have to chase down uh, – well, now that it's been broadcast by GBH, it's got to be out there. You've got to find this because for the opening night for his debut at the Boston Pops – um, well, all right. You have to understand this is broadcast live on April 29th, 1980. And so Empire hasn't even opened in theaters yet. Uh, it will open for another three weeks on May 21st. Um, he, the first time people outside of the team that was working on the movie got to hear Yoda's theme, and the, the 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 Imperial March was there in Boston Symphony Hall that night. Wow. He played played it live on stage for them, um, and then, kind of as the cherry on the sundae, um, you know, he he leaves the stage for a moment, and then who comes walking up the main aisle of the theater? But Anthony Daniels in his full C three PO outfit. Wow, and he steps to the podium. And he then suddenly rolling in from the side of the stage is his R2-D2. And Anthony now begins to direct the Boston, uh, you know, the, the Boston Pops Orchestra in the Star Wars theme. Uh, but only every so often conceding a note to R2-D2. So so he plays along with the orchestra. Um but yeah, it, it was John kind of doing exactly what the Boston Pops organization wanted him to—to to bring a certain amount of star star power to this, you know, this you know fifty-year-old organization. And um, I want to say that it went well, um, you know, that his thirteen-year run as as the head of the Boston Pops uh, was trouble-free, but it was not. Um, and that's large – and I say this as a New Englander, a, a, a proud, flinty New Englander, but the musicians in the Boston Pops Orchestra at that time were jerks. <laughs> um, they they had been on the job for a long time. They were protected by the Musicians Union and, I, and more to the point, they kind of resented this Hollywood poser who came to town and was trying to replace Arthur Fiedler. Um so you know they didn't make life all that easy for John um you know and 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 you have to understand that in the two years the first two years he's on the job as the conductor of the Boston Pops orchestra um the, the first year he he writes the score for Raiders uh the year after that he does you know the the, the score for ET I mean, this is a guy who's literally at the top of, of, of his career, but he has to fly back to orchestra and deal with these snotty musicians who frankly kind of resent the fact that whenever they'd open a list of, you know, what they were going to be playing that night, there'd be a John Williams number sitting there in the middle of it. And it's like, oh, we're going to play his music, you know, this Hollywood guy. And, not understanding that it was actually the Boston pops organization that was insisting to John, you know, could you put in one of your, your some music that you wrote into every program, because that's what the people who are buying the tickets that come to the show expect, you know, they, they want to see John Williams, you know, uh, you know, play the Raiders March or they, you know, they want to see, you know, you, you do the theme for me And, um, the musicians would do things like when the selections would be announced that they'd hiss, you know, uh, and, and the thing is when, when people are hissing, you can't really see who's, who's making the noise, mm-hmm. but it was very disrespectful to the conductor. And, uh, and the weird part is John took it till June of 1980, uh, 1984. And then he, uh, uh, abruptly resigned and, and just sort of cited the, the discipline of the orchestra and the fact that some of the members of the orchestra had been very reluctant to rehearse as the reason that he was stepping away from the position. And uh, the heads of the Boston, um, uh, pops organization, uh, kind of stepped in and negotiated a truce, so to speak. And, uh, after finding several very vocal reluctant to re- rehearse members of the orchestra, And removing them, which by the way did not go over well with the Boston's Musicians Union. Um, you know, John returned and and also because he was still keeping his full work schedule out in Hollywood, he was still doing, you know, scores for Stevens films and George's films. Um they agreed to sort of trim off a, a few concerts uh, on either side of being in season at the end of the season. So, uh, you know, he could continue to, to focus on his work. And John then stayed on for another nine years. Uh, but finally in 1991 um, he announced that, you know, it just, the commute was getting to be a bit much and he, he wanted to actually go from conducting to writing serious music. While continuing to do his film stuff, so he announced in in ninety one that he'd be stepping down as the head of you know the Boston Pops um, in, in ninety three, and, and then there was sort of a victory lap. And but they, again, there were still Boston musicians who were jerks who just talked about the, how the then sixty two year old Williams was you know well he's stepping down because he's lost his chops and you know that that you know he's. You know so you know, and again, just to sort of nail home how wrong they were in nineteen ninety four is of course when John's score for Jurassic Park you know came out
1: <laughs> Yeah, that <laughs> and, little
0: independent film, yeah, you know, they're, they're barely anything that people paid attention to, and then, um, but the interesting thing is John did enjoy as part of his job working with the Tanglewood organization and Arranged to stay on as the, the, the uh, conductor with Tanglewood, and he to this day he still goes out to the western part of Massachusetts, and he loves working with those musicians. You know, he's he's continued to do it, and you know, of course, Keith Lockhart came on as the new conductor of the Boston Pops, and I, I with no I, with some great pleasure. I I, I I want to point out the irony. That the best and and during John's time as the head of the the Boston Pops, they had many best selling albums. But during Keith Larkhart's run, the best selling al- album that the Boston Pops has ever ever done. Uh, in fact, this came out in two thousand seventeen. Uh, lights, camera, action! It was a celebration of 60 years of John Williams' music. So, <laughs> you know, on behalf of the jerks on the you know uh, the Boston Pops orchestra who do made John Williams' life less enjoyable than it should have been, it's like, <laughs> on you guys yeah. and you know that's called sour uh, grapes and jealousy. Yeah, but but at the same time, it was just honestly, didn't you have to chase this down because. Uh, just for, just to see, you know, C3PO and, and, and again, I, I now I have to go back and read my copy of I am C3PO to see if he actually talked about, uh, you know, doing, you know, conducting the Boston pops. Cause I can't imagine just walking out on stage with the limited sight lines Of that costume, let alone climbing up to the podium. And he he really does conduct well. I mean, he did, you know, it almost looked like Anthony had classical training. I've actually been in that
1: theater, and Mm -hmm. not when John Williams was there, but I've been in that theater. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen in Chicago, I saw John Williams conduct the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily, that's, kind of loosely related to what you're talking about but Mm -hmm. uh, I saw the respect and the love because I was sort of expecting a little snobbery Mm -hmm. uh, from the theater types in Chicago because they're used to seeing classical this and that but John Williams you know made it mainstream and and put a a flourish on it that is unprecedented I think in the history of music and there's nothing but love in that theater and I'm I'm glad to see that that is sort of that shift has changed
0: because he deserves that Oh I, I I totally agree but that, but I, I again I just I was looking at the lights uh camera action setup and what's fascinating is the last five selections on on you know this Boston Pops uh you know uh, recording are actually from uh the Force Awakens. Wow. you know so I mean again you know it, and what was interesting is that Williams himself evidently helped pick out the music, and so he he steered away from you know. In fact, he I was reading an interview with him where he talked about how you know he wants to give the audiences what they expect you know or what they expected when they come to a Boston Pops concert. But at the same time, he said, "I don't want to play the shark song." <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like you know I I get tired of playing the shark song. So that's what's interesting about the uh, lights, camera, action is that. He's got, for example, the music he wrote for Steven Suberg's The Terminal in there. Uh, which by the way is a is a pretty decent Tom Hanks movie if you haven't seen it. Yeah. So, agreed. Yeah. You know. All right. Well, anyway, uh seriously though, if if you, you get the chance, folks, head over to YouTube or poke around online. Somebody somewhere uh has to have grabbed this and thrown this up online. But again, it's the April twenty-ninth, nineteen eighty uh concert for the Boston Pops, uh, John Williams' debut. In fact, there's a wonderful, uh, you know, the the Burgess Meredith, uh, you know, has like a 15-minute long narrative performance in in front of the orchestra uh, that's well worth paying attention to as well. But it's a a wonderful, uh, you know, hour-long presentation, and it's worth it alone to look at the clothes and the hairstyle because, man, we dressed bad back then. Uh, (laughs) So... Anyway, all right, you know, but, you know, tradition from bad to good stuff, you're always doing such great stuff over on Coffee with Kano. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I wanted to mention I really enjoyed the most recent uh, uh, teaching uh, with Star Wars, your your, your piece about uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan's conflict in Attack of the Clones. Uh, well, that would was, That was That was an interesting thing to try to dig out there. Yeah,
1: Um, kind of my thought process with these is to just try to find teachable moments. They don't necessarily always go well, but it's important to get it from the perspective of the teacher and the learner. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I think we both are all of those things at different times in our lives. And so Mm -hmm. I appreciate that.
0: No, no, no. They're, 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 again, it's just a continually strong series, and, and folks, if you're not reading them, you should be going over to StarWars.com to, to check these out, but but at the same time, you're also doing great stuff over at, at Coffee with Kenobi. Uh, what have you been up to lately over there?
1: Well, uh, we've we've been looking because it was the, I believe it been six months since the release of The Rise of Skywalker, so we kind of looked at in the short term how that film has aged and how our perspectives have looked at it. We did a a thing where we recorded some stuff live at the drive-in, talking about The Empire Strikes Back, and then I just... Um, I, we Today, I released an episode uh, looking back at Star Wars Rebels, because Mason uh, finished that series uh, for his first go-around last week, so there was a lot of interesting conceptual stuff on my mind about that, so it was really fun to talk about. Basically, uh, things that we thought Rebels brought into the Star Wars universe and into storytelling. And then... Next week, here's a scoop that no one knows yet. I I sat down with Ahmed Best for about forty five minutes, and wow. it was a spectacular interview. Yeah. Holy cow, Jar Jar! Yes, and he is the man is truly a gentleman and a scholar. He talked about film and etymology, and just uh, he's an intellectual. And I I had the best time speaking with him.
0: Oh, that's so cool! Yeah, I you know, in fact. Um, I I have to say that was honestly, I, I, I I wish I had been there, uh, for the, the, the Star Wars celebration in Chicago. That was the one where the, he finally got some, some recognition from fans, right? Wonderful, wonderful ovation. Yeah. He's very, uh, very cool dude. Oh, I cannot, whoa, whoa, no, 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 that, that, that's something definitely go out of your way for folks. Holy cow. That's great. Um, well, I'm my side of events. Yeah, we have, our shows as well. We got uh, Disney's ish with Lentesta. and uh, the lens basically living in the parks right now, <laughs> uh, trying to get a handle on you know how the Disney parks operate in in this this coronavirus era, uh, and you know we're trying to do something similar. Uh, myself and Dustin fuse with the Universal Joint Podcast, um, and you know that. But again, kind of hard to do from New Hampshire. Uh, but meanwhile, you mentioned, uh, Aaron Adams. We do the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Marvel us Disney podcast with him. And he also edits a lot of the podcasts here at the Jim Hill media podcast network. And then of course we have, you know, uh, you know, Drew Taylor, uh, who by the way, uh, want to work in a plug. Uh, he's got his galaxy nucleus, uh, art of Disney, uh, excuse me, Pixar's onward this Saturday, Uh, It's a Zoom conference um, with him and two of the visual development artists for that uh, Dan Scanlon film. And again, again, Drew has some amazing stories about this, well worth checking out. I want to say it's 2 o'clock Los Angeles time, uh, so check that out. And also, um, you know, finally got a brand new episode of I Want That Up with Shelly Valladolid. Dolid. And uh, again, it's it's kind of a you know challenging time to to do something about merch, but we're in there swinging, folks. Um, I'll tell you what, folks, if you could do both Dan and I a favor, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only uh, looking at Lucasfilm but also. Coffee with Kenobi, uh, you know, that that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, likewise, if you really, really, really like what you heard here, uh, if you could subscribe to Bandcamp, that helps. Um, and, and then again, always great fun to follow what you're up to on social media. Uh, and I want to remind folks where they can find you there. Sure. You can find me personally on Twitter at Mr. Zer M R Z
1: E H R and Coffee with is all over social media. So please Follow us and like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our channel on YouTube.
0: And I would be remiss, we we do, we should promote your Patreon effort, the pour over.
1: Oh yes, Uh, we just wrapped up our top uh, 15 favorite movies of all time and now we've moved into top 15 favorite fictional characters and we went all over the place with uh, films, with plays, with Comic books, with sitcoms, with comic strips. I mean, all over the place. It was it was quite daunting, actually.
0: Fifteen favorite characters. Yeah, wow. just
1: fictional characters. And I, I mean, I had all the people from like, of course, there are a few stars characters sneaking in, but I even had added Inspector Clouseau and just ran, oh, just fun, you know, fun fictional. Oh, characters that even okay. the impression that you don't want to. Basically, when you're experiencing this time with that character, whether it's you're reading it or watching it. You don't want that time
0: to end, and so that kind of inspired this. oh, that's cool i I forgive me for asking Elwood P. Dowd make the cut uh number uh, sixteen, yeah, just Ah, it. damn it, okay, well, okay you <sighs> know just it speaking of which a quick again, to give you some idea of why Tom Hanks is the nicest, smartest actor in Hollywood. Um, a, a couple of years ago, uh, I want to say it's Universal that has the rights to remake Harvey, uh, you know, the, the play that features the character Elwood P. Dowd and Steven Spielberg was like, Oh, I'd love to do that. And so, you know, so Spielberg actually on Universal's behalf approaches Tom Hanks cause it's like, well, you know, there's only one person on the world who could pr- do a role as well, that role as well as James Stewart. And Jimmy Stewart. And Hank say, you know, you know Spieler shows up, he does the pitch. And Hank says no. And it's like you know, and again, don't get me wrong, they're piling up money. Everybody in this is gonna make a fortune because this is a guaranteed hit film. And it's like, No, I love what Jimmy Stewart did. I get I can't do anything as good as Jimmy Stewart did, I as that I would be down. Yeah, that's and and then again just the fact that you know just said no because it's like no that's that's one of my favorite performances i'm no no i am not going to top that there's no way i could top that and what of the point it would ruin the film for me so um Anyway, uh, that, that's not really a Star Wars story, but throw that in there for free. Um, okay. And Nancy, uh, dude, speaking of social media, Nancy wants me to remind you you can find uh, us on Twitter and Instagram is Jim Hill Media. And then on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. And I guess that's going to do it for now, Dan. Though the fact that just five hours before we recorded this, we got that huge – Star Wars related news. I have to uneasy an easy feeling that more of these stories are going to pile up by before we get around to recording a new looking at film. So yep,
1: this is the weekend uh, of San Diego Comic-Con's virtual. Oh, con. So, God, you're it could be, right. It could be a big
0: Jeez. OK, well, uh, I hope we'll be back with those stories uh, on the next folks uh, show folks. But thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon.